Matthew chapter 6 this evening. I'm so glad you're here this evening. I'm glad that um, football is a good hobby and, and those things are they're, they're fine in their place. But at no point should those things become our religion. And uh, it is for many people. And I'm sorry to say that, but the reality is, on a night where we're going to come together and learn about the power of prayer, many people only know about the power of uh, Dak Prescott's arm or... Uh, the defensive line of the Giants. I mean, that, that's, that's what their evening is going to boil down to. And I'm so glad that there's more to life than the Cowboys. Um, and and I'm, I'm glad there's more to life than, than the Packers because I heard Brother Marshall exceedingly loud there. So I'm glad there's more to life to, than the Packers as well. Um, no, I, I am so glad that we're here this evening. I wouldn't trade it for anything. I don't want to be home. I want to be here around God's Word with God's people. And so Matthew chapter 6 this evening... We'll begin reading in verse number 9. We spoke last week, the first two points of the sermon, the essentials of daily prayer. And we're going to continue this evening. We'll close out our Lord's model prayer and we'll explain some of the things that he might have been speaking about as he taught. Matthew chapter 6 verse 9, the Bible says, After this manner therefore pray ye, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now if you'll remember last week, we spoke on two different subjects within this prayer. We specifically mentioned how the Bible says in verse 10, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And we labeled that a request for divine submission. If you weren't here last week, we'll briefly cover it. But what we were talking about is, it's clear, given the, what verse 10 says, is if we have to pray for God's will to be done, that somewhat necessitates the fact that it is not always done. We spoke how that God's will and God's plan are not always the same. Now, God is never surprised by events that go on. God is never overwhelmed by anything that goes on. But that does not mean it's within God's will. Uh, A quick example of that is, it is never God's will for anyone to be raped. It is never God's will for anyone to be murdered. It's never God's will for, for many, many things that go on in this wicked, fallen world that we live in. But God has a plan for it. It started in Genesis, and it'll, it, well, it won't end in Revelation, but we at least know how the story goes anyway in the book of Revelation. God has a plan. And He had a plan before He created this world, and you can see that even when the Bible says Christ was the Lamb, uh, was uh, slain before the foundation of the world. Even before God created Adam and Eve, God had Christ in mind. So we see God's plan, although God's will is not always accomplished. So we as Christians ought to pray for divine submission in our own life, that we would submit to God's will, and not only His plan, but His will for our life. That's where we'll find peace joy and contentment, but we should pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ that they would have the strength to walk within God's will. So we spoke about a request for daily uh, divine submission that was found in verse 10. Then verse 11, we spoke about a request for our daily supply. The Bible says, give us this day 
our daily bread. And one of the words that sticks out very strongly to me is the word daily. We spoke how when we focus to trust God today, it really eases the burdens of tomorrow. When we trust God today, it removes worry from our life and it strengthens our faith. And we use the example how, do you ever question that the sun is going to come up tomorrow? Do you ever question that winter will come? Not if you've watched Frozen, because it always comes. But, but honestly, we don't question these things. We go to bed fully well expecting the sun will come up tomorrow, as Annie said. And I was not fully intending to uh, use that quote there. But, but we know that the sun will come up tomorrow. Why? Not because some book tells us it will. But because our experiences over years and years and years has taught us the sun comes up in the morning. Our seasons change, and even though we have as unique of seasons as probably anywhere in the world here in Texas, they are seasons, and they change. Why do we know it's going to happen? Because we've seen it time and time again. As you trust God every single day, it becomes the expectation and not the irregularity in your life. You know that God's going to provide. Even David said, so I have been young, but I am older now. I have never seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging for bread. David uses the example of his life as the, the foundation for his faith in God. So we spoke about the request for divine submission and the request for our daily supply. Now, number three this evening, we move on to our request for deferred sin. Our request for deferred sin. In verse number 12, the Bible says, And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Let's have a word of prayer before we begin this evening. Father, I ask that you bless the sermon tonight. Bless me as I stand to preach. Lord, I pray that you would allow me to do it with complete humility, realizing that I am nothing to, to deliver this message. I do, I do not have the ability within myself to do what needs to be done. For only your Holy Spirit can illuminate the Word of God to Christians. And so, Lord, I can explain it, but it could be foolishness to them if your Holy Spirit is not involved tonight. Lord, with all of my heart, I ask that you would use this time as we study your Word to help strengthen our prayer life as Christians. I ask in Jesus' precious name, Amen. As I've studied this particular verse, 12... Uh, my, my first initial thought was, okay, the Bible says forgive us our debts. I needed to look up what the word debts was. And there is no way around the word. The word is specifically speaking of sin within the Christian life. Now, I would love to tell you that it's something else because it would be a whole lot easier to explain. But Jesus here instructs the Christian that we are to pray for forgiveness. We see here two types of prayers or two uh, uh, strategies of prayer on this topic of forgiveness. Number one, a request for our personal forgiveness. Now, the idea of asking God to forgive you in prayer is not uncommon to you. Certainly you've heard it, and I would even say that most of us have practiced it. But here's a question I have for you. Maybe you've thought of it, maybe you have not. The word justified means once saved, 
once declared righteous before God, which is what the term means, declared righteous before God, it means present, past, and future. You see, if I wake up tomorrow and I mess up, which I can promise you is a very strong likelihood my wife would probably tell you. But if I wake up tomorrow and I mess up, I do not need to constantly go to God asking for forgiveness so that my salvation may be obtained is what we would believe and hold to as Baptists. But then why is it so important for me to go to God and ask for forgiveness if my past sins are forgiven, my present sins are forgiven, and my future sins are forgiven? The Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation to those which are in Christ Jesus. We are declared righteous because of the relationship we have with Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So upon the Word of God, we know when we ask for forgiveness, God forgives us and He casts our sins into the depths of His forgetfulness, as many have said. More importantly, and probably if you understand doctrine, this is the best way to explain it. It has been covered by the precious, redeeming blood of Jesus Christ. There needs no, you don't need to go to a priest, you don't need to uh, 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 say your Hail Mary. When you ask for forgiveness, you are plunged into the blood of Jesus Christ and it, forgi- it cleanses you and God forgives your sin. Okay, past, present, future. So tomorrow, when you wake up and we're studying daily prayer. Why would Jesus instruct you to continue to ask for forgiveness on what seems to be a daily basis? Think about it. I mean, many Christians have done it for years, but I honestly have have wrestled with this notion of, if I'm forgiven in the eyes of God, why would I then need to go to Him every day and ask for forgiveness? It's not because I wasn't willing to admit that I was doing wrong. It was just in the eyes of God... I needed to know what I need to do, my personal responsibility for him. But it's clear here Jesus instructs to pray for forgiveness. So how can we understand this concept? Okay, let me me try to break it down for you this way. There are two veins of forgiveness. One is judicial forgiveness. Do you know who the judge of every man is? God. And when we are plunged under the blood of Jesus Christ, when we are marked redeemed and we are imprinted by His Holy Ghost's uh, uh, indwelling in our life, when that moment occurs, judicially, the grand judge of every man stands up and says, you are forgiven. According to the terms of the law, my righteous standard for forgiveness has been met the judge. And you have a judicial forgiveness. Romans 5.1, therefore being justified, like the judge would justify someone, by faith we have peace with God, the judge, through Christ Jesus our Lord. So we are justified judicially. But there's a second vein of forgiveness I want to explain to you this evening, and that is parental forgiveness. When we get saved... We are taken out of a standing with God of guilt 
of, of, of shame. We are taken out of that and placed under the righteousness of Jesus, marked as a son of God, claimed by Jesus as, 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 as a, a, a son of God. And man, that's good, good stuff there. Our relationship with God changes at that point, though. Because where he was not our father before, the Bible says, we now have the opportunity and the privilege to call him Abba, Father. Meaning a a very personal and sweet type of relationship with God. But before you were saved, you did not have that. It was only because of the relationship of Jesus in your life that you have this new access with God. This peace with God, as the Bible would term it. So you have this judicial relationship where God, at the moment of salvation, declares us righteous. But now as a Christian, we are placed as a child and a parental obligation to God. Now listen to me. So when you mess up, you you, you are not so much against the law as you are against dad. You know, if I, my dad told me a long time ago, son, be careful about your testimony in this community because what you do in this community will determine, not only it will mark my ministry, but it will mark your ministry. And in my life, if I had done something uh, uh, just wicked and vulgar and brought shame to this church and this community and, and my father, I would have a lot to answer to him for that, would I not? Uh, now, now, it could have been perfectly within the realm of the law but still brought shame to my father, correct? Could I not have done something that by a judge's evaluation would have been okay, but by a Christian's perspective, what may not have been good, certainly of a preacher's kid, and uh, it would have reflected poorly on my dad, so I would have had to answer to that. Let me explain it to you this way. I have thankfully never had to make a call. I've had to make a lot of strange and, and, and awkward calls to my father. I've had to make the call, Dad... I had a wreck. Dad, uh, I flipped the boat. Um, I've, I've had to make many, many awkward calls, but I've never had to make this one. Dad, I'm in uh, Tarrant County Jail, and uh, I need you to bring as much cash as you can gather. Now, some of my brothers have had to make that call, but they were dumb. They got caught. You know, and when they went to court, they had to answer to a judge based upon the the actions that they did, right? And whether or not that judge found them guilty is completely irrelevant to this conversation. But they had done something that brought uh, was against the law and, and the judge had to then rule on it. But they had also done something to hurt my father. And so they had to answer to the judge, but they also had to answer to who? Dad. Just because you take care of it with the law doesn't mean it's okay with dad. You have to come back and say, you know, dad, I may not have thought that through. I was probably in the wrong place in the wrong time and and dad, I'm sorry. But see, our God holds the position of both of these offices in our life. 
He holds the office of the judicial branch, if you will, the ultimate judge of our life, which is declared righteous, which is stamped forgiven, all the good things about Christianity. You are forgiven past, present, future, the judicial branch of it. But now you also have this new relationship with God, which is what? This parental branch. And did you know that it grieves God when you sin? It breaks His heart. You know, sin committed by the Christian is no cleaner than sin committed by the sinner. The Bible instructs us not to grieve the Holy Spirit of God whereby we are sealed into the day of redemption. Could you imagine that all-powerful God, an all-powerful God, all-knowing, all places at one time, that God being brought to His knees of sorts uh, in sorrow because of your sin. That's what the Bible says it does to Him. It grieves Him. And even though you may have not done anything uh, against the law, because you are declared righteous according to the law, by faith, through grace, okay, that's taken care of, you still got to answer to dad. And there needs to come a moment where even though everything's okay with the judge, Christian, that you bow your knee to a heavenly father that loves you so very much and you recognize you are wrong. And your sin broke his heart. And yeah, you're still on your way to heaven, but the reality is you need to get it right with dad, not the judge. That's already been taken care of. But you need to go to dad and you need to say, Dad, I'm so sorry. Dad, forgive us this day of our debts. Forgive me, Lord, of all that I've done against your law. More importantly, against your character and your will for my life. God, you represent holiness. God, you represent righteousness. There is not anything uh, wicked about you. And yet in that moment, in that brief time of flesh, I allowed my priorities and my goals and my wills and my ambitions to overtake those wonderful ones that you have for me. God, Father, Dad, I'm sorry. We need to ask for forgiveness in our prayer life. And one time Brian Cohn asked me in children's church, he was preaching, and he asked me and he said, how many times is the least amount of times you've ever sinned? And uh, he was asking the class collectively. And, uh, you know, every class has its smart aleck. And so I decided to outthink Brian Cohn, which is not easily done, I might say. But I decided to say, you know, Brian, it's uh, pretty hard to sin in a hospital bed. I had recently had knee surgery, and, and I had been down a little bit. And so I, or I think it was actually the salmonella at that point. And I told him, I said, Brian, it's pretty hard to sin when, uh, when you're in a hospital bed. So he wrote a zero on the board for me. You know, that's not realistic. It's not hard to sin at all in a hospital bed. I've been in a couple of them since. In fact... Sometimes when the doctor comes in, you can't understand him. You say, maybe your attitude gets a little bit uh, out of of course. Uh, The nurses come in and they can't find your vein. Maybe a few bad chosen words come to your mind. I mean, I've learned since my naive days, it's actually quite easy to sin just about any place you want to sin. Every day we need to come to the Father and we need to say, Dad, 
I know that I am clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. I know that according to the law, my deeds would never get me to heaven and they're not going to send me to hell now. But Lord, I did something yesterday that broke your heart. And I'm sorry. There's a a request for personal forgiveness. But not only is there a request for personal forgiveness, notice number two, there is a request for practicing forgiveness. If you thought number one was hard, wait till we get to number two. Verse number 12, and forgive us our debts. That's the personal forgiveness. Now we've got to practice forgiveness as we forgive our debtors. The Bible is very, very clear on this type of uh, relationship of forgiveness. The Bible says that we must forgive. And as, as, as much as is in this prayer... Jesus begins, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Man, there's a lot in that, that prayer. And, and we've spent nearly two weeks covering it. But out of everything here, Jesus chose to immediately elaborate on only one of the concepts. Not daily bread. Not our Father in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Why do we turn British when we talk to God? I'm I'm not sure. But, But Jesus only chose to elaborate on one truth in this prayer. What is it? Verse number 13, he closes with amen. Verse number 14, he starts a commentary. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Jesus went out of his way to teach on this topic. Remember before the prayer, before he, they, his disciples asked, Father, or Jesus teaches how to pray. And Jesus says, okay, if you're going to pray, don't be like the, the hypocrite. Uh, uh, don't, don't go into the streets and, and, and make yourself known to men, but enter into your closet. And then he says, don't be like the heathen. And, and he instructed a few principles before the prayer. And then he taught them daily prayer. After the prayer, he now says, okay, here's what's so very important, guys. Don't miss this. You must be willing to forgive if you think you're going to be able to receive forgiveness. Throughout the Bible, this concept rings true. Mark 11, verse 24, is a harmonious passage to this one in the Bible. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever ye desire when ye pray, believe that ye receive them, and ye shall have them. Woo, that's a good one, right? If you want to pray, you want to believe that God will give it to you, the Bible says God will give it to you. That's good. Here's verse number 25. And when ye stand praying, forgive, if ye have aught against any, 
that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. Now, we talked about this judicial branch of God, right? We, we spoke of how... It, Christian, don't ever allow some book, some preacher, some article to convince you that you were able to lose your salvation. What a ridiculous concept because Jesus came to give us everlasting life. Even Willy Wonka got an everlasting gobstopper, right? And we, all, we ha- never have any doubt on what that is. Everlasting that has an expiration date doesn't seem very, very everlasting to me. Your salvation is settled in heaven. Okay, but now God talks about not forgiving you. What accompanies sin in the Christian life? When a Christian sins, I would say there is an extreme amount of guilt that should occur. God has given every man a conscience. The Bible says he's written his law on their hearts. And that's what that means in Romans chapter 1. He's given every man a conscience. So every person that says, well, I'll be the judge of what's right and wrong, God says they're a liar. He put his law in their heart. Okay. More than that, though, the Christian has not only a conscience, the Christian has God in them. And God in them works directly with their conscience. And when a Christian is found in the wrong, there should be an extreme amount of guilt and conviction that accompanies that sin. If there's not, you need to have a checkup. You know, the doctor comes to you with a little hammer and he hits you right in the kneecap. I thought it was assault at first, but it's not. It's actually a medical practice. What's he doing? He's checking your reflexes. The Christian's life ought to have a reflex of aggravation and guilt at sin. It, they accompany one another in the Christian's life. Our God is righteous, and when we are not righteous, it ought to get in our crawl, as we would like to say out here in the sticks. It gets in our crawl, we get a burr under our saddle, and it just won't go away. Okay? Guilt accompanies sin in the Christian life. You know what else accompanies it? A, a split in fellowship from God. I mean, the moment you go, uh, you need God and you put your knee on the ground beside your bed and you begin to pray, there's a chasm there that you recognize was not there before. A gulf that, that before you've had this fellowship with God and, and you know that when you've prayed to God in the past, it felt like you were speaking as face to face with him. That is the way the Christian life is supposed to be. You ought to feel your prayers are being heard because the Bible says they are. But when sin enters the Christian life, a great gulf gets between you and God, a, a, a blockade, if you will. That's your sin. Even David in Psalm 51 referred to, Lord, take not thine Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. When David sinned, listen to me, he recognized something had happened in his life. His relationship with God had it fragmented. So when the Bible here says that God will not forgive you, it's certainly not talking about your stance in salvation. 
Because Jesus overwhelmed where sin was great. Jesus took care of all that. So what is God talking about? The only biblical thing that I can surmise is this. If you are not willing to get right with your brother, the gulf that is fixed between you and God will remain. The guilt that accompanies your own sin because you are unwilling to forgive the sin of your brother, it will remain. The restoration of fellowship that you once had with God will no longer be like it used to be until you're willing to get up from your praying posture, approach your brother and say, Brother, I've had something against you. The other day you came up to me and you said your truck was nicer than me. And I just tell you, I don't think it is. And it hurt my feelings. And boy, I was not a big fan of that. And I tell you, until you're willing to forgive the sin of your brother, listen to me. God says the guilt and the, and the chasm that exists between you and him will stay. Because you have to forgive your brother in order to receive this forgiveness. This restoration, if you will. And do not miss the fact that Jesus asks God for the ability to do this. In his instructional prayer, you know what he says? This isn't going to be easy for you. It's natural to hold a grudge, I've noticed. It's natural to just let somebody offend you and think you're being the bigger Christian because you never say anything. But when Jesus says, you need to pray that you would have the power from God to forgive your brothers when they offend you, we ought to take note that Jesus is really saying, this is going to be hard. And it's certainly not natural for you to do this. So why would we ever forgive our brother? Why would we ever forgive those that have wronged us? Listen to me. Because we wronged God. And we know how sweet forgiveness can be. Don't miss that. It doesn't really matter whether or not Brother Adam Bernie deserves my forgiveness. Now, Brother Adam, you've not done anything to upset me. But, but if Brother Adam did, which he never would because, you know, he's a good guy. But if he ever did, he doesn't deserve forgiveness based upon the grounds that he has earned it. Because the forgiveness in which I have received is the forgiveness that I am now asking God to allow me to implement. I've received unconditional forgiveness, not based upon my merits, not based upon my words, not based upon my works, not based upon my actions. I received forgiveness from God because He is gracious. And now I pray the same prayer, God Allow me to extend to Brother Adam unmerited, unwarranted, unasked for forgiveness because it represents you when I extend it to him. So often we, we sit on opposite sides or we park on opposite sides of the church to avoid someone. How ridiculous of a, of, of a practice in a Christian's life. So often people, even within ministries, can't work together. I just don't get it. We ought to be willing to work. We ought to be able to serve because Christ forgave us. And it is that type of forgiveness that we are implementing. 
The Bible says in Ephesians 4, Be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Huh, I wonder why we should do that. Even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Many of you have come up to me and mentioned that I am a movie star. I have been telling you all for years, I had the talents and the looks, I just needed the opportunity. Uh, it's actually quite funny, um, after the trailer was stolen, I remember sitting in a conference in California, and a church had had a really bad thing happen to that church, and the news requested to come out and do a story, and so uh, they, they allowed them to, and because the story put the church in such a positive light, the next Sundays after that, the church had a lot of visitors and a lot of prospects, and, and the church actually began to see fruit because this bad thing had happened in the church's past. And so, as soon as it happened, I recalled that story, and I thought, man, this would be great. We've had news cameras in our parking lot for bad things. It would be nice to have one in our parking lot for a good thing for a change. And so, so I actually sent an email to NBC5. That's the one that I grew up watching I don't watch them anymore, but that's the one that was usually on uh, uh, when, when I was at my parents' house. And so I sent an email to them and said, hey, we had this bad thing happen. We're trying to raise donations. I think it would be really good for y'all to come out and maybe do a story. If it's something you're interested in, I'd definitely uh, love, to, love to entertain that. And, uh, and I immediately got an email back saying, we're so overwhelmed with emails just like this and we have no time. Okay. I just assumed that it wasn't really the type of story that's aired on the news. Uh, a few days later, we had uh, uh, the Burleson police. They've been helping us, the investigators there. They've been doing a tremendous job. I can't thank them enough. Um, and I'm brown-nosing a bit because we have one here. So I appreciate you. Uh, and uh, appreciate to the, I appreciate the Joshua police officer that didn't pull me over when I was doing 15 over this afternoon on Main Street. That was a blessing because I knew I was getting pulled over there. Praise the Lord. God, God, God answers prayer. I could say that. But uh, when the Burleson police posted it on their Facebook, the church kind of endorsed it. And it was not long after that, Star Telegram reached out to us to do a story. And so Miss Amy worked with them on the Facebook and stuff. And notice I called it the Facebook. How old am I, right? Um, should we the Google it? I don't know. But... Um, so they reached out to us, we, we allowed them to do the article, and we worked with them a little bit. Within the day, I had received about five different phone calls from the same news network requesting a story, and probably five others from other networks. I had the police, chief, uh, the investigator calling me, I had the sergeant calling me saying, we're sorry, this is not what we wanted to happen, but all these news networks are reaching out to you to do a story, and we want... You know, if you want to do it, we'll give them your information. And, and I was like, okay, whatever y'all want to do. So Friday night, I met with one. Yesterday, I met with two. Today, we had one come and try to ambush every single one of y'all during church. And we tried taking care of that, so it didn't happen. Uh, that was Univision, so 5 o'clock on Yosindo. No, uh, but uh, that's going to be 5 o'clock today. Brother Franco's going to be on there. And uh, uh, so that was good. One of the questions that seemed to be a universal theme was, towards the end of the interview, they would always ask me this. If you have an opportunity to say something to the people that did this, what would you say? And I'll be honest with you guys, I struggled with it immediately. 
Not the question per se, in the days after the trailer was taken and the stuff was taken, I struggled in my spirit because I had been hearing of the looters and all that that was going on down there in, in, in the Houston area. And I just, I mean, I even made a comment to Dad. I'm like, talk about the scum of the earth. That people would take advantage of other people when they already have bad things happening to them. I mean, I could justify it when some guy broke into my house. Maybe they just needed my stuff more than me. But I guarantee you there's not a person stealing from those people down there that need it more than they do. And I got angry at first. I, I, I was struggling in my spirit. I knew, it was, I knew it was a struggle. I knew it wasn't right. And I knew that something needed to take place. And so I, I came to the point where I just kind of didn't allow it to stay in my mind very long. And this was before the trailer was stolen. When the trailer was stolen, man, it kind of put me over the top a little bit. I already had feelings of animosity towards these people, these type of people. And I don't want to lump them all in, but I think you all know what I'm talking about. I already had feelings of animosity towards them. And so now the trailer gets stolen. Frankly, some of it's my fault because I, I didn't secure it well enough. I had a lock on it, but it didn't get stolen. So there's this amount of guilt. There's this amount of anger and animosity towards these people. And now a news reporter puts a microphone into my face and says, Do you have something you want to say to him? Yeah, I've got a few choice words. How long does your sensor button last? I mean, I was... I was struggling at first. I've got to be honest, I came to the point where I realized I've got to forgive those people. Sinners are going to sin. People are going to do evil things. And I said to every single news reporter that came, I said, you know, there's a story in the Bible about Joseph. His brothers sell him into slavery. A whole lot of bad things happened to him in his life. But somehow God puts him in a a position of promotion and now he's helping so many people and and they come to him and and they're scared of him and they look at him and he looks at them and he says something to the effect of what you meant for evil, God meant for good. To save much people alive. You know, and I realized that my anger, my animosity towards those people was not Christ-like. Wicked people do wicked things. Bad people do bad things. But I have to be willing as a Christian not to exercise my own judgment and my own anger, but I ought to be willing to exercise the judgment of my God, which says all men can be forgiven. Christian, we don't practice this principle nearly enough. We allow things to get under our skin and begin to fester like a cancer, but it's not what the Bible paints of a healthy Christian's life, and it's certainly not the picture the Bible paints of someone who gets their prayers answered. When we go to God, we ought to say, God, I pray that you'd forgive me of every single sin that has upset you, but Lord, I pray that you would enable me the power to forgive those that don't deserve it, that have not asked for it, because that's what you did for me. So we have this we, we we have this request for deferred sin. I want you to notice secondly, and we're almost done, a request for directed steps. 
a request for directed steps and is found in verse 13. The Bible says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. If, if you know anything about the Bible, the Bible makes pretty plain that Christians, even the best Christians, should not depend on their own navigational beacons to direct their life. The, uh, the Bible tells us that the ways of men seem right to them, but the end thereof is destruction. Uh, when you set out on your own course and your own path, it's going to make a whole lot of sense, and it's usually going to result in catastrophe. In fact, the Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 10, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. So what this prayer is in verse 13, it is a Christian sincerely coming to God and saying, God, I need you to guide me. I need you to lead me each and every step. I need to follow you because the moment I begin to trust in my experiences and my intellect, I will certainly fail. God, I trust in you today to lead me throughout my day. That's what the Bible is instructing. But there's a, a curious statement made here that I call the dilemma of this passage. The Bible says in verse 13, And lead us not into temptation. Now the moment you read that, something ought to sound odd to you if you're a Bible student. Something doesn't sound right. Because other passages in the Bible make very clear that when a man is tempted, let him not think that God tempted him, because God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. God does not put uh, 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 harmful temptations in our path to make us fall and to drag us down. That is not God. So when Jesus prays, and lead us not a temptation, into temptation... You have to understand that if it doesn't agree with the book of James, we've got to figure out what he's meaning. The Bible is right. Okay, listen to me. The Bible is always right. And when something doesn't sound right, there is always an explanation in our interpretation. So, I'm going to give to you two suggestions on the way that we interpret this passage. You can decide for yourself, whichever you choose, but it is your choice, okay? Here's the first way you can interpret this passage of Scripture. You can understand the passage to mean trials as opposed to temptations. Now, I'm not, I want to make clear to you, I'm not saying the King James is wrong. I'm not substituting the word out. I'm not saying that when the Bible says that God tempted Abraham, we ought to substitute that word out. I believe that the words are right. And I am certainly not intelligent enough to correct what those 72 men did or what King James endorsed. More importantly, what God had his stamp of approval on. But in the Bible, we know that the word temptations can sometimes be understood as trials. And while God would never put something in our path to make us to sin, God does put something in our path to make us exercise faith. God does put trials in our life to grow us and strengthen us as Christians, as he did with Abraham. When the Bible says that God tempted Abraham, it wasn't that God 
uh, put a lot of money in a sack somewhere and Abraham walked by that sack and was really tempted to take it or to turn it into the lost and found. That wasn't what happened. If you'll remember the story, what took place was God asked Abraham to give to him the one thing that was the most precious to him in this world. God wanted to make sure that Abraham's priorities were right with him before he did with Abraham what he had planned for Abraham. He said, now I know that you fear me, Abraham. You've, put, you've not withheld your only son from me. He tested him. He did not tempt him. Amen. So you can understand this passage to be saying, God, do not allow me today to face tempt, uh, 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 tests that you might put in my path. Many commentators believe that's the way this passage should be understood. I don't necessarily agree. I think that trials in our life are sometimes good. The easy Christian life, there is no such thing. The Christian life is full of mountaintop experiences and valley experiences. But rarely do we see God clearly on the mountain as we do in the valley. Most of the time we find Him in our hardest, hardest time. So we need trials. We need these things. Even Peter said, Beloved, not, uh, uh, don't think, it sh- think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. So you shouldn't think this is odd or out of place. That is the Christian life, okay? But you can understand it that way if you would like. Or instead of understanding it as tests or trials instead of temptations... We can understand it based upon our interpretation of God's restrictive power on Satan. Now, I know I'm using a lot of big terms, and and I know I can tell by many of your faces, including the teenagers that are crashed out over here, I know for a fact that I've lost some some of you, okay? But I want you to understand this concept. Satan has no power but that which is given from God. The powers that be are ordained of God. God's not surprised that Satan's at large right now. God is permitting it to take place. And I believe that every time Satan wants to do something, he's got to go to, go to God like a little kid does and ask him for his permission. I refer you to the story of Job. Remember when Job, uh, or when Satan comes to appear before God, and God says, hey, Satan, where have you been? Can you imagine answering that question to God? You can't lie to him. He knows. <laughs> Satan, where have you been? Well, you know, I've been roaming up and down the earth. I've, I've to and from. I've been in the earth. Okay, you know. You, you sent me there. <laughs> That's the jurisdiction you gave me. Yeah, you're right. And God says, Has you, have you considered my servant Job? And, and, and Satan looks at him as if that's the one guy he's been trying to get, but he hasn't gotten yet. Like he, he wanted to get him because he sees this guy exercising all this faith. He sees this guy whose life is so cushy. He sees all this and it, it almost angers Job and he said, or it almost angers Satan. And he looks at God and says, oh yeah, but does he fear you for naught? Man, this is some tense stuff in heaven. This is like Judge Judy stuff, okay? It's tense stuff. God says, have you considered my servant Job? And and Satan, with 
just anger and bitterness looks at God and says, yeah, he, does he fear you for not? Does he, will he fear you no matter what happens to him? And God says, or, or actually Satan refers to the hedge of protection that God had put around him. And he says, if you'll take that down, I'll take him out. And God says, okay, I'll let you have access. You, you do what you think, just don't touch Job. So that's when the first series of trials happens. Satan goes and attacks Job. God, or Satan appears to God again, and, and, and Satan says, man, this is a tougher case than I thought it was. And, and God says, okay, you think you, you have some secret? Now you can attack Job. Remember the boils come at that time. Remember pain not only strikes his life, but him himself. And, and, and it's this great story. But I want to draw your attention to this. Satan needed God's permission to put Job through that test. So when Jesus says that we should pray that God would not deliver us or, 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 or would, that he would uh, uh, not lead us to temptation, I submit to you that it is calling upon the restrictive all power of God over Satan and saying, God Today I pray that you would not allow Satan, the evil one, the wicked one, referred to three different times in the New Testament as the wicked one, that you would not allow the wicked one and his subordinate power to attack me above that I am able. And you know what the book of 1 Corinthians says? This just so happens to be a really good Bible. But the Bible says, God is faithful. Who will not suffer you to be attempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape? So what you're doing when you pray that prayer, Lord, deliver us not into temptation. You're not saying, God, don't, don't, don't allow some wicked thing to come across my path that may cause me to fall. No, you're saying, God, bind Satan and deliver me from his snare because you have the power to do so. It's calling upon God to put Satan's hands behind his back and not throw the Christian into such an intense trial that we would not be able to win. It's asking God to help in this battle of overcoming sin in the flesh. The dilemma in this passage may not be easily understood, but if you take a biblical approach to it, it is understood, the dilemma of this passage. And the reason I interpret the passage the way that I do is because of the deliverance that is referred to in, in verse number 13. And lead us not in temptation, into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, you could, as many Bible uh, students and commentators do, understand this to mean tempta uh, instead of temptations, trials. But you cannot take away the fact that the next words after the comma say, deliver us from evil. Now, I believe that you, if, if you take a biblical approach to it, you'll understand that this is talking about the moment of temptation. You'll understand that this is talking about when evil comes in the life of a Christian, that we would have the power to be delivered from it. So, we ask God, God, help us in the moment that is difficult for us, strengthen us, and deliver us. Psalm 91, the Bible says, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, 
He is my refuge and my fortress. My God in Him will I trust. Surely He shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler and from the noise on pestilence. He shall cover thee with His feathers, and under His wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. It's the same type of prayer that the psalmist prayed here. Lord, today when I face the greatest temptation that I'll face, you allow me to be under the shelter of your wing. You help me. You assist me. You guide me through your Holy Spirit's power. And you know what the Bible says? The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. The good man rises early and asks God to help him walk his daily walk so that way when he does start to face temptation, God will show him the clearest path to the way that is escape. Oh, we see here that the Bible is speaking of a request for directed steps. And as I've studied this passage, listen to me, we're done, but don't close your Bible because that's... It makes you tune out. Just be disciplined with me for a little bit. As I've studied this prayer, I've come to one conclusion. Prayer is an admission of weakness in the Christian's life. And don't misunderstand what I'm saying. When you pray, even the posture is a weak one. You come to this altar, it doesn't matter how you do it, but you're getting down in a very vulnerable position, are you not? You're bowing yourself, you're submitting yourself. Even the physical practice of prayer is one that shows weakness. And that's not an easy thing for a lot of us men to do. I don't like admitting I'm weak at anything. I want to win, I want to fight you, and I'm going to, I'm going to beat you. Okay, that's, that's my life. That's what, I, that's what my dad taught me. You know, he, he packed an army duffel bag full of clothes when I was in peewee football. And he said, okay, Andrew, you come knock the stuffings out of this bag. I mean, that's how I learned how to tackle, was, was I'm, going to, I'm going to knock the stuffings out of it. Okay, and that's me. That's the guy I am. If I'm going to play you, I want to beat you. I beat the teenagers at Frisbee Golf yesterday, and I loved every single second of it, okay? That's me. I like winning, and when I lose, I don't like it. And sometimes it's hard for us to admit that there is any weakness in our life, especially publicly, but even in private. You know what prayer is, though? It is absolutely 100% admitting you do not have this life figured out and asking God to help you. It's the admission of weakness in a Christian's life. One day, Billy Graham was preaching and Karl Marx's philosophies on, 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 on society and economics had become very popular. They've influenced much of society as we know it, but Karl Marx was a, was a humanist. He was a heathen. So many of these types of philosophies influenced his teaching. Many people began to subscribe to Karl Marx. And so Billy Graham, it being a, an issue, he mentioned it one day in his prayer. And Karl Marx had said a statement... And it was this, religion and God are just a crutch. So Billy Graham one day as he was preaching, he said, There is a man that said religion and God are just a crutch. 
And he went on to say, and I agree. The whole crowd grew silent. Wondering what this, this pastor that has done so much for God, wondering what he meant, this preacher, this evangelist that, that was standing, that every week preached God's word faithfully and preached the power of God, and now he's agreeing with this man named Karl Marx who said religion and God are just a crutch. The crowd was silent. And then he said, and I just wonder which one of us is not limping. The reality is all of us are limping. All of us have struggles. All of us have weaknesses. And while we might not like to show them publicly or privately or even to the ones closest to us, we all are weak. And prayer is simply this. Leaning on the crutch of God. You can't figure this life out on your own. So what prayer is tonight when you come to this altar, it is an admission of your weakness and a reliance on His strength. It is you reverberating in your life what the Apostle said, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Christian, how's your daily prayer life? Because if it is weak, I can promise you, your faith in Christianity, you're also weak.